Number one, the body count is always bigger. Number two, the death scenes are always much more elaborate. More blood, more gore. Carnage, candy. Your core audience just expects it. And number three, if you want your sequel to become a franchise, never, ever... How do we find the killer, Randy? That's what I want to know. Oh, let's look at the suspects. There's Derek, the obvious boyfriend. Hello, Billy Loomis. The guy's pre-madness, pity, me, surface wound, conveniently missed every major vein and artery. So you think it's Derek? Not so fast. Let's assume the killer, or Urs, has a half a brain. He's not a Nick at Night rerun type of guy. He wants to break some new ground, right? Right. So forget the boyfriend. It's tired. Who else do we got? There's... Mickey, the freaky Tarantino film student. But if he's a suspect, so am I. So let's move on. Well, let's not move on. Maybe you are a suspect. Well, if I'm a suspect, you're a suspect. We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bob? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy yourself. We move fast. Can you take it? No matter what you do now, you're still part of everything that's happened. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. We need more heart in motion pictures. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell him. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Are you listening? The Boulevard of Broken Dreams. We're making another movie. This is the one I'll be remembered Welcome back to the Sorted Cinema Podcast. This week, we're going to be taking a look at 1997 Scream 2, directed by the late Wes Craven and written by Kevin Williamson. Here's a clip. Hello? Hello, Sydney. Remember me? What do you want? It's time, girlfriend. Don't you know history repeats itself? Last night, two college students were brutally murdered. Police are everywhere. The girl was stabbed seven times. Ouch! Hi, Gail Weathers, author of The Woodsboro Murders. She's an opportunist. Be kind, she saved our lives. Yeah, I know, I read all about it in the book. I can't wait to see the movie. supposed to do if there is some freaked out psycho they're probably already in your life okay so you just want to sit here and, and wait to see who drops next the way i see it someone's out to make a sequel so it's our job to observe the rules of the sequel number one the body count is always bigger number two the death scenes are always much more elaborate how do we find the killer randy that's what i want to know well let's look at the suspects interrupting anything am i it's him he can see us do you want to die tonight is that the best you can do why not set your goals higher huh you want to be one of the big boys manson bundy oj 
scary movie. Showgirls. Absolutely frightening. from Scream 2, again, directed by Wes Craven and written by Kevin Williamson. My name is Patrick Murphy, and joining me as always is Ricky D. What's up, Patrick? What a crazy Halloween this has been. 2020 is the day after, November 1st. We had a full moon. We had a blue moon. It was beautiful outside. Not too cold, not too warm. Perfect temperature. We had In a... Montreal. And... and... <laughs> It's funny because I was watching all the screen movies over and over this week. I watched a bunch of slasher films, Halloween, Black Christmas, you name it. And I kept thinking, I'm like, man, I'm surprised no one's actually done this in real life where they try to imitate slasher films on Halloween. And sure enough, last night in Quebec, some dude, some random dude went around killing a bunch of random people in the streets dressed up as if he was in a slasher film. Crazy Halloween, dude. Whoa. Yeah. That's an interesting way to start the podcast. Um... I don't know if this is too morbid, but how, what did he dress up as? I'm not entirely sure. Uh, it was some sort of like medieval costume. He had a sword. So yeah, and it, it reminded me of Scream Two specifically because of the ending. Sure. Well, we'll get to uh, life imitating art pretty soon here. But uh, also joining us is uh, guest Caitlin Marceau, who is a horror author and writer at Tilt Magazine. Hi guys! Thank you so much for having me. Good to have you. I take it you're a big Scream fan. I am, yeah. Okay, that's good. Because I think uh, I think Rick and I are both going to be at least fans of the first two movies. We'll maybe get into the sequels a little bit. I know I haven't seen them as much, but uh, Rick, you have. I did want to tell you, Rick, one little aside. I also was watching a lot of slasher movies this week. I caught up on a lot of Friday the 13th that I had never seen before, uh, the later ones especially. I'm, I regret doing that. You didn't watch Jason X. Jason X is awesome. I... <laughs> <laughs> is that where he goes to space or something? Yeah, it's an amazing oh, movie. Oh, no. It's so no, good. it's not. <laughs> it's fun. Amazing maybe in context of other Friday the 13th movies. It's just a fun uh, film. But what I did watch for the first time that you're not going to believe is uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I had never seen. The original ever? film, which I consider the greatest horror film ever made alongside The Birds and Night of the Living Dead, the original. Yeah, I just, it was one of those movies, you know, there's always movies, even if they were movie people, there's always movies you just haven't seen, you haven't gotten around to them yet, and that was one of them, and I finally decided to, to watch it. I have some thoughts on that, I, I completely respect that movie, and, uh, and I enjoyed it, and especially the end, I realized, like, this movie really works, but we're not here to review that one. Um, we are here to review Scream 2, which I know a lot of people, and I'm going to include myself in this, actually consider to be better than slightly just marginally better than the original scream which i also love so we can get into what you guys think of that but uh well that, that's actually a good place to start so caitlin where do you rank scream 2 in the scream franchise i mean i honestly am a huge fan of the first one so unfortunately scream 2 does not beat the original but it's definitely a close second like i really do enjoy scream 2 i have my issues with it which i imagine we'll probably get to later on but it's it's definitely a close second. Rick, what about you? Guys, sequels suck. By definition alone, sequels are <laughs> inferior films. 
Come We're going to get to that scene, by the way. <laughs> so here's the thing. So here's my story with the Scream franchise. I actually did not watch Scream right away. The original film, for whatever reason, I just did not want to see it. I didn't think it would be good. Everyone kept telling me, go see it, go see it, go see it. But the people who were telling me to go see it were also fans of really bad horror films, right? So I'm like, you, you guys, you like movies I don't like. I like really good horror films. And so finally, I saw Scream. And I don't know how... But I somehow never, never like, I never heard anyone spoil the ending or disp- or even like the the opening twist, like the first scene in which Drew Barrymore dies. And I thought Drew Barrymore was in the entire film, right? So somehow I managed to not see the film on. Well, I saw it on the big screen. So here's the thing: in Montreal back in the days, there was a movie theater called the, uh, the Palace, and the Palace used to play movies that were on dvd like on home video that you can rent and or on their way to home video and so but everyone used to go to the palace because it was only two dollars to see a movie so it was even cheaper than renting a film right so i would go to the palace all the time and so i went to go see scream for two dollars at the palace and every show like every screening was sold out it, it was it was like the most popular movie theater in montreal which is why it was so fun to watch a movie at the palace because the kind of movie theater where people would smoke like in the theater and like smoke joints and drink and it was just like a party atmosphere like the opening of this movie right so um anyhow i i really like scream i thought it was an amazing movie wes craven's one of my favorite film directors of all time a nightmare on elm street is my gateway into the hor- into the, the world of horror i just did not like the ending like the the idea of having two killers because while watching scream i kept thinking oh my god they're gonna do two killers they're gonna do two killers and sure enough i was right so i called it um and a lot of people think that it was amazing that they made two killers because they just never saw it coming whereas for me i had the complete opposite reaction so for years i considered scream 2 to be by far the best in the franchise i thought it was far superior to scream 1 specifically because i think it has a better ending so this movie came out in 1997 i've seen I've seen this movie like maybe 15 times. I've seen Scream the first movie maybe 10 times. I've seen Scream 3 twice and I've seen I've seen Scream 4 four times. Rewatching all of these movies back to back and I did it backwards. So I started with Scream 4, Scream 3, Scream 2 and then ended on Scream 1. I actually take it back. I think Scream is still the better film overall, overall. But but here's the thing. Scream 2 has three of the best scenes in the entire franchise scream one the opening scene is by far the best the drew barrymore scene is one of the greatest scenes in any horror film regardless if it's scream and or not it is incredible right but scream three we have the scene in the radio station which is absolutely amazing because they play around with sound and and the sound the soundproof barrier and we can talk about it later but i think it's one of the best scenes in the franchise we have the car scene which i'm not going to talk about now because it's my favorite scene in the movie, so I'm going to talk about it later. And even the the finale, and of course, the opening scene. So, so overall, I understand why people think Scream 2 is the better film. Because for years, I considered it the better film. Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel love this movie. They hated slasher films. They, they, they didn't even give a good review to the first Scream movie. And yet, they gave this, this movie a raving review. So, the only thing about Scream 2... Like, it lacks the original's element of surprise because it's the sequel and you expect two killers. And that is why I always docked points from the original because I thought they should have saved two killers for the sequel. Not put it right away in the original, but I get that they were trying to break the rules, right? Um, so anyhow, 
I think this is a smart film. It's a, it's a scary film. It's got more suspense than the original film. It has way more suspense than, than Scream 3 and Scream 4. And I think it's uh, one of the best sequels ever made. Here's the thing. For, for me, it has there's, there's no scene in this movie that burns its way into my brain as much as that opening scene in the original Scream. I, that's by far the best scene in the entire franchise. And like you said, it's one of the best scenes in all four movies. Um, but the, what seals it for me is Scream has, I think the original Scream has the best screenplay structure. and But Scream 2 has far superior dialogue in my mind. Uh, I, it's hard to listen to the original Scream sometimes. The, the long sort of soliloquies these characters go on, especially in the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way that Kevin Williamson wrote the dialogue was very 90s, almost sort of Kevin Smithish. Um, there was that way of talking back then, and it's hard now to listen to that. Whereas Scream 2 softened that a bit, and it's a lot easier for, for me. The, the dialogue seems more natural in Scream 2, and therefore the wit is uh, uh, holds up a lot better today. You, you know so what the, I still consider it to be better, just for that. You, you know, I'm going to totally agree with you. I think the dialogue is better. I just think overall, like when I say overall, I'm talking about like the production values, the editing, the soundtrack, the the structure, the cast, the acting. I think Scream 1 is just a tad bit better than Scream 2. But Sc- sure. the biggest achievement of Scream 2 is the fact that Kevin Williamson had to rewrite the movie on on set because the screenplay got leaked on the internet. And this is 1997 when the internet started becoming like what the internet is today, right? Where people started using the internet, where there was like film blogs and places like Reddit and message boards. And somehow the screenplay landed on the internet. So he had to rewrite the entire screenplay while they were filming the screenplay, which can't be easy because this film doubles down on the meta-ness. It doubles down on the kills, the murders, the red herrings, the suspense, like it's just everything that Scream is times two. And that includes the plot twist and the surprises. And and so that's like pretty impressive. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of like, I, I was researching this last night and Caitlin, I'm not sure how much you're aware of this this script leak that happened. But it, I'm it not, is, I had no idea that was even a thing. <laughs> it's a tangled web to unravel as to what is true and what is not. And the original story that was posted was that the ending leaked and that there were actually four killers and that Mickey wasn't one of them, that it was still Billy Loomis's mom. And it was also Hallie, uh, her roommate. And Derek was one of the killers. So it was the boyfriend and it was her roommate, but then it was also Billy Loomis's mom. And then Cotton would actually attack Sydney at the end as well. But there is actual footage of one of the killers that you see at the end of the film, which was cut from the final, the final, um, the final cut, right? Um, where the killers in the, the tower. Yeah, Williamson himself said that, that that's ending that was leaked was a dummy ending. They had written three different dummy endings, including one where Dewey was the killer, just to make sure they threw people off. But the, what, what actually leaked was the first 30 or 40 pages. Wes Craven said 30, Kevin Williamson said 40. For the first 30 or 40 pages of the screenplay. So not the ending, which is, according to Williamson, is the original ending. But uh, but he did have to rewrite a ton of the, uh, like half the script, essentially, uh, while they were and if it's like the first half, that must have been so difficult too, because it's like all your establishing shots and like yeah. getting the story off the ground. That must have been a nightmare. Yeah, and all of the actors had no idea how the movie ended. Right. They were they were not given the last twenty pages of the script, so they just had to show up that day. They were only handed the ending the day that they actually shot it. 
Um, and I know that this is a rush production. They had to do it in less than a year. I think the turnaround was less than a year since the, the first one actually released in theaters. They started filming six months later. Yeah. So it was a, it was, it, it was a higher budget, but it was a much faster production. So it's impressive what they came up with in such a short turnaround. But here's, here's the thing about Scream 1. The original film, and I never really noticed this until this week watching it backwards, like in terms of like uh, the chronological order. When you get to Scream 1, that movie is shot out in the open. Like, I don't know exactly where, but alongside, like, the mountains, right? Like, like her house, for example, in the background, like, when you look out the like, when you see a shot that sees out the windows, uh, or even when she goes on her, French por- on her front porch, you see the, the, the mountain view, right? Like, it's in the middle of nowhere. Like, every single location in Scream 1, including the school, it's out in the middle of nowhere. And Scream 2, it looks like it was all shot on a Hollywood set. You don't have the same open, wide cameras as you do in Scream 1. The cinematography is tighter, uh, but there's something really unique and, and really clever. And, and, and in terms of like the direction from, from Wes Craven, it's, that is why he's the master of suspense, that he can create these incredible suspenseful scenes out in the middle of nowhere, even in the daylight. In fact, in this movie, Randy gets killed. Um, not only does he get killed inside the broadcast van, but he gets killed in broad daylight. So there's a lot of scenes that happen in this movie in broad daylight, but yet he finds a way to build the suspense. Yeah, we can get into the the, uh, the Wes Craven. Obviously, these movies owe a big debt to him. It's not just Williamson's, you know, kind of sharp and witty writing, but Wes Craven's direction for sure. Caitlin, what is the biggest like? What's the biggest horror element to you? The most successful thing that this that Scream Two does? Well, so, okay, so. Weirdly enough, everyone keeps talking about Scream 1 and the opening scene and how, like, amazing that was and how it's, like, the best one in the entire franchise. I'm actually going to come in and say that I preferred the opening of Scream 2. Really? Um, Yeah, okay, so I was, I'm showing my age here, but I was a kid when these movies came out, so I didn't get to watch them, like, until I was, like, pretty well in high school. Um, And anybody who knows me, uh, from when I was younger, I was a complete and total chicken shit growing up, so horror movies were just terrifying to me. Like, I wouldn't watch them. I avoided them like with my life, which is definitely, you know, a 180 from my current situation, which is all horror all the time. Um, And so seeing Scream 2 when I was younger, like I could easily picture it as like a viral marketing campaign that they would do, you know, having that kind of like performance in front of, you know, the crowd that's watching like the release of this new movie. And it's, you know, it's an advanced screening and they're super excited because I remember going to like in Montreal, one of the openings of Paranormal Activity when it came out. And like, there was crazy shit like that going on too at the time in the theater and like this viral marketing that, you know, campaign that went out. And it was really when I was anyways getting, you know, into social media and into the internet, I was like a late bloomer for everything digital. <laughs> so like <laughs> I didn't, ha- I don't know, I didn't have you know, Facebook until I was going into Seja. Like that's kind of how long I held off on allowing myself to be online just because I-, I hated the idea of it. And, you know, again, kind of a 180. Um, so I just remember seeing, yeah, like the opening scene and being like, yeah, if I was in the theater at that time and I saw this woman like screaming on stage and literally dying in front of me, would I have recognized that as somebody has actually been murdered in my cinema or would it be like, you know, way to commit, <laughs> like way to, way to, you know, adhere to that role. <laughs> but it kind of feels like it's a precursor to events that unfolded later in life. Cause nowadays yeah. you hear about it all the time on the news, like some kid gets stabbed and 20 students just sit there and watch they, and they film it on their like iPhones. Right. This is like yeah. 1997. We had the internet, we had, we had cell phones, but we didn't really have smartphones, but it, it kind of felt like it, it was, um, 
uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The a crystal ball, like a view into the future. But that opening yeah. scene is one of the best scenes in the whole entire franchise. I don't think it's better than the opening scene of Scream 1, but I think it's incredible. Like, they are watching a movie within a movie, but the movie within a movie is a recreation of the first scene, or of the first film, like the actual first film. And then you get the recreation of the first scene in which... Uh, okay, so wait. Heather Graham plays Drew Barrymore. Tori Spelling plays Nev Campbell, right? That's right. Right. So, and then, of course, the callback to the original film, because uh, in the original film, she says, uh, if like, they ask her who would play you in a, in, in a movie, and she says, if Tori Spelling, whatever, everyone knows the story. But anyways, the point is that that opening scene is incredible. But I also like the fact that it's Jada Pinkett Smith, right? Who technically is the stand-in for the Drew Barrymore character. And in other words, the character is... The first character is going to be the victim of Ghostface. Like, the first person that's going to die. And in this case, it's her. But she dies in the movie theater. And like you said, everybody's watching her die. And everyone just thinks it's part of the marketing. And, like, I know some people, they... And I understand why, like, some people don't like the opening scene because it's too over the top and people wouldn't really be running around the movie theater and screaming. They would actually be watching a movie. And also the way she dies, like, she crawls up to the front of the movie screen and then it's all dramatic, like, she's, like, the bride of Frankenstein. But I personally love that. And I love the yeah. the entire direction, the way Wes Craven set it up. And, and also the fact that it wasn't Wes Craven who directed Stab. It's actually Robert Rodriguez. And Robert Rodriguez was supposed to direct the original screen film, but for whatever reason, ended up going to Wes Craven. So we have two great directors directing two fantastic scenes, and one scene is a, is is happens to be a movie within the actual movie that we're, we're watching. It's it's just, I mean, it's fantastic. Like, and and he, here's the thing. So uh, before we started recording, you guys said that you didn't like Scream Three, and last week on the podcast, I said Scream Three is not a good movie. I completely take it back. I encourage everyone to rewatch all four movies if you have time, because now that we're like what 10, 20, 15 years removed from when these movies were initially released i feel like it's easier to enjoy these movies and appreciate the movies because when you went into scream the original scream you did not know what to expect so it blew everyone away right like everyone was amazed by the ending and the twist and the two killers and so on and so forth when scream 2 came out people knew what to expect so people were expecting two killers they were expecting the red herrings they were expecting like the meta humor etc etc and same with Scream 3 and so on and so forth. But re-watching these movies again, I find that there's something to appreciate in every single one of these entries. Like, for example, Scream 3 has the best sets. Scream 3 has the best pacing and the best editing. Scream 3 does a great job in paying homage to the original film and even the second film where they, they recreate scenes in that film that are shot by shot exactly like the scenes from the original two films. So there's a lot to like in all of the four films, and I think Scream 3 has the best killer reveal. My problem with Scream 2, and I do love this movie, it's not the reveal, it's not the writing, it's not the screenplay, it's not the dialogue, it's the casting. I don't like the casting of the, of, of the, of, uh, what's-her-face from Roseanne. Laurie Metcalf? Yeah, because she was fresh off the heels of Roseanne. And so every time I saw her on screen, I just kept thinking that's the lady from Roseanne. Oh, I think she's great. <laughs> I thought she was a good... I have a whole issue with, like, her entire situation. So I don't know if you want to get into that now or later. Sure, but, yeah. Like, so, like, her revelation to me was just... And, again, I, I love this movie, so, like, don't get me wrong. It is definitely up there. But I thought her revelation as one of the killers was just the dumbest thing I've ever seen. And it's not even because like, I'm like, oh no, Billy Loomis's mom, what a bad choice. I actually loved the fact that it was his mom. Like I thought that was such a nice choice to make. My frustration is that, 
you know, she's going around being Debbie Salt. She's talking to, you know, Gail Weathers this whole time, who in Scream 3, or sorry, Scream 4 actually takes a moment to like confront someone and is like, ever heard the expression, I wrote the book on this? She's like lauding herself as this expert on like the Woodboro murders. She would have done all of this research, right? She's an investigative reporter. She's made her career based on, you know, how intelligent she is and how observant she is and how in-depth she can get. Are you telling me this woman would not have realized it's Billy Loomis's mom? Like Sydney takes one look at her and is like, Mrs. Loomis? Wait a minute. They answer this question at the end of the film. She had a lot of work done. Yeah, but as somebody who's also had a lot of work done, that is not how this works. <laughs> oh, it's ridiculous. There's yeah. a couple look. There's plenty of logic flaws in this. We can get into like why Derek was ever even a suspect when the oh first time God, yeah. Sid- Sydney's attacked. Ghostface is right behind her in the room with her, and Derek's outside the window, and they're like they both put their hands on the window, and then later on everybody's <laughs> like, well, maybe Derek was the killer. I mean, he cut himself pretty easily. Wait like, a minute, they, they cover this too. I mean, in the first movie, it's the exact same thing because that's how we end up having two killers when one of them is present, the other one's the one that's trying to commit the crime. But in the world, it's fine for the audience to think that Derek might be one of the killers, but in the world, they're not suspecting two killers at the moment. It's not like the cops are are saying, we're on the lookout for two killers. They never make that point. So it was ridiculous to think or even suspect Derek when he was clearly outside the window while she was being attacked, and she saw him out the window. Except this is the sequel, and in the original film, there are two killers. No, I mean, in the world, though, Rick, in the world, the cops would never suspect him because they're not looking for two killers. I guess, but you know what? Like, I just watched one of the greatest, like, slasher films of all time last night, Black Christmas, and I still think, by the way, Halloween is the best, but that's a conversation for another day. But in that film... Those are fighting words, but okay. (laughs) Halloween is a better film. Because in that film, it ends where there it, it does leave the possibility open that there are two killers, and she kills her... I don't know if I should spoil the film, but she kills one of them. And then there's still one left alive. So it's like, who really is the killer? Is there two killers? Was there one killer? Did she kill the wrong person? And so, like, the thing about the Scream franchise is clearly it's taking inspiration from all of these classic films from Peeping Tom to Psycho to Halloween to Black Christmas to Nightmare on Elm Street and so on and so forth. Um, and so I, I get what you're saying, like, in the real world, but this is more like in the real world of a slasher film. In the world of Scream, I'm not talking about the real world. In the real world, like, I get it. The audience is going to expect two killers. In the world of Scream, they're not looking for two. And just like you're saying, in the world of Scream, she probably would have recognized Billy Loomis's mom, even with a little, a lot of work done. <laughs> like, but even just, like, I mean, Sydney's there a lot of the time. Like, she's around, like, Gail several times. She's, like, crowded by the reporters. I mean, it took Sydney, like, one quick glance and, like, a second. And she's like, oh, this is Billy Loomis's, like, mom. Yeah, and like, Gail would have known that immediately because well, that was it. the whole story with Cotton, right? Like, yeah. But the thing is, Randy, Randy, Randy answers this question, guys. You don't look at it as a sequel; you look at it as a trilogy. In Scream Three, they talk about the trilogy, but they don't really yeah. go into in this movie. It's all about sequels, so Randy just goes into that. And he's when he's talking about the killers with Dewey. I, I think that's your big scene, right, where, where they talk about the who the killer could be in a sequel. And they do actually, they bring up Hallie, the, the roommate, as, as a possible option, which, of course, was in the dummy script. She was one of the killers. Um, and Derek, the boyfriend, because that would make sense for a copycat thing, um, because the audience sort of expects it. And he even brings up 
Jason Voorhees' mother, which is sort of a foreshadowing, I think. <laughs> but when he talks to Mickey in the classroom, he says not a sequel, part of a trilogy completely planned. Like, the thing is, they had planned to do a trilogy. Like, when, when, when they filmed, or when he, when Kevin Williamson wrote Scream, the original film, and when they started filming Scream, he had already planned and started writing Scream 2. And then when he was writing Scream 2 and filming Scream 2, he was already writing Scream 3. So they had always planned it as a trilogy. Yeah, no, I get that. But that reference was to the Why the Empire Strikes Back wasn't considered a sequel, per se, um, which is fine. I, I We can get to that whole classroom scene, because honestly, I think that is the one, well, we'll like I say, we'll get to that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, Caitlin, you, you were talking about, like, Billy Loomis, is, like, the, the, the fact that the the mother was not is not like her reveal yeah. is one of the worst things about this movie yeah yeah that's probably like the biggest grave i have i did i actually loved her performance like again i'm not knocking it i thought she was really good i thought she was creepy i liked the idea of like his mom being the killer i just i can tell you as someone who does not look the same as she did like five years ago at no point in time has anybody you know looked at me and been like i wonder who that person is she's so familiar but so distant <laughs> like I, like five years ago, I was 300 pounds with a shaved head. I'm definitely not the same woman now as I am then. I've met a lot of people in real life and I did not recognize them because they completely changed the way they look. Maybe it's just me. I think like, here's the thing. I think, I think for me personally, if you start talking and I, I will recognize your voice and that's how, like, if I know you really well, that's how I will know. But if you change your actual physical like appearance, like your hair color, your if you're if you gain weight or lose weight, I might not recognize you. That's me. So I can imagine people just not realizing that she is the mom and how much time has passed since they've actually seen this lady. And in terms of Gail, Gail's never actually met her in real years. life. Yeah, it's only yeah, but Sydney recognizes years. her like immediately, and she's going out of her way to like be part of that media circuit that is always kind of hounding Sydney. So like, I don't know. I feel like she was playing real fast and loose with that. I guess it, there, so there's tons of logical inconsistencies in this movie that you could definitely pick apart. Yeah, um, and I think it's it's I think you, the, that applies to Scream as well. By the way, I think there's a lot of things in the original Scream that you could apply the same sort of logic filter to and and come up with a lot of inconsistencies. Um, like the fact that Rose McGowan would date someone way cooler and better looking. Than Matthew Lillard. Oh God, annoying. <laughs> um, but here's the thing: the only reason why I take issue, and I'm not saying you're wrong, Caitlin, because it's just an opinion, and it's just because for me personally, I think Gail is one of the greatest characters in any horror film. She's by far my favorite character in the Scream franchise. Oh, she's amazing. She's she's amazing, and so I get what you're saying, and she's the smartest character of all the characters in all four movies. But I think Easily. it was maybe too obvious. Like maybe it's like. Who is this lady? She comes out of nowhere. She's trying to be like me. She's trying to be the star reporter. She's trying to steal the story. She's trying to steal the spotlight. It should have been obvious, but it should have been obvious for us as viewers. So my question to you is, did you ever know she was one of the killers? The first time I watched it, yeah, I thought it was pretty suspicious that she was like immediately throwing herself into this. She was like hinting at like other people being suspects. I think it's like the first or second She's with the, the media circuit and they're trying to get the story from Gail. She like offers, she like, I, f I forget the exact way she does it, but she calls somebody else like suspicious. Dewey. And I'm like, yeah, that's what it is. And I'm like, anybody who's like going out of their way to play like this kind of like casting suspicion game on someone else, I was like immediately, 
I don't trust you. And then when she turned out to be the killer, I'm like, yeah, this this checks out. She seemed evil from the get-go. Randy does it throughout the whole entire film to the point where him and Dewey are having a conversation, I think, in the cafeteria. And he says, wait a minute, that would make you a suspect. And he's like, well, wait a minute, that would make you a suspect. And they just drop the conversation. Yeah, I mean, this this movie, I mean, like, watching it again, because like, I rewatched it not long ago, you know, for today's podcast, you know, to refresh a memory. And, like, granted, a lot of the film, you know, feels like the 1997 version of, you know, the game Among Us, <laughs> where they're trying to figure out who's the most sus amongst them. Um, but I still feel like her character really, for me anyways, like, you know, not necessarily having, you know, the first time I watched it, knew she was going to be the killer. From the get-go, I felt like she was, pretty clearly a suspicious character pretty obviously inserting herself into things that she wouldn't normally as a reporter be putting yourself into like I don't know I just feel like she was coming to conclusions and just like getting in the way and just being very present and I'm like what kind of film is going to highlight this random reporter if they don't play a key role in it you know um and obviously being really antagonistic against Gail Weathers who again I love her she is the smartest character I think in pretty much every horror film I've seen to me, it just sort of, it, it bothered me that she didn't catch that when, like, as an audience member, I was like, oh, yeah, this woman's crazy. She's definitely going to try to kill someone. It's possible you could write it off as Gail seeing her more as a competitor than as a person. And that's where the lack of recognition comes from. That her initial introduction to this character is as a competitor. And so her, yeah. her instinct is to see her that way. And for some reason, it doesn't register in her brain that this could be something she actually recognizes. Um, that's the only way I can write it off because Gail obviously is very alpha and is is looking for anybody that's going to try to take her down. And that's the way she's going to sort of see her. Can we talk about what I think is the central theme of the movie? And it it's it's sort of mentioned right at the start of the film in the classroom where, is it Cece? Cece says, that is so moral majority. You can't blame real life violence on entertainment. Right, and that was going on. That was something that was going on at the time in the United States, where um, they were talking about violence in movies and how it affected actual people, and whether or not violence in real life was caused by violence in movies. So that was a that's a dated reference now. I guess that topic is every now and again it comes up, but it doesn't really come up that much anymore. But it was big at the time. But of course, it's actually relevant to the plot, which is a good thing. So it wasn't just a throwaway dated line. It actually still makes sense years later within the, with respect to the plot. Since that's Mickey's entire purpose of doing this is that he was influenced in many ways by the violence in the movies and wants to become a real life star of his own like personal movie. Mickey's an odd character, by the way. Like, so we've talked enough about like, uh, about Mrs. Loomis. What do you think of Mickey being revealed as one of the murderers? I mean, I have an issue with who the killers are in this film. Like, I think that's why I think of the four films. To me, it was pretty obvious who the two killers were in this film. And I'm not sure if that's exactly what they were going for. But in the first movie, like, I knew there would be two killers. For whatever reason, I just I just assumed they would have two killers. But I thought Dewey was one of the killers, right? The clever thing about the first movie is that you are given so many reasons to be suspicious of, of Billy Loomis. And maybe and, and Matthew Lillard's character, who I can't remember the name of it right now. But uh, every time you, you're like, yes, they are definitely evil, they do something to throw you off because you weren't expecting two killers. And so they do something to make you think, like, no, he couldn't be. He couldn't be the bad guy. 
And but those two characters are at least in the entire movie. In this movie, it's very different. In Scream Two, like these two killers don't play a big part in the actual movie. It's weird because I really do like Timothy Oliphant, but not because of Scream Two. Like this is his first. Uh, I think it's his first big acting Major role in a role. film. Right. Yeah. yeah. He later went on to be like the lead of Justified, one of the greatest TV shows of all time. But that's besides the point. In this movie, he's like my least favorite character. Because I don't really think he's much of a character. And so not only is it so obvious that Mickey and What's-Her-Face um, are the killers, but I so with, with her, like I liked her performance, I liked her character, like the writing of her character. For me, it was just this thing where I could not not think of Roseanne, right? It's one of those things when an actor pops up in a movie <laughs> and they're playing the character the exact same way they would play the character in, say, a, a different film or a TV show, it, it bugs me. Like, it takes me out of the movie, right? With his performance, like, I didn't really know who this dude was at the time. I just didn't really like his performance, and I thought it was just so obvious that this guy was the killer or one of the killers. I didn't, like, okay, so I actually didn't catch that he was going to be the killer, because I didn't even, like, he didn't phase me, and I think you mentioned that he wasn't really much of a character, and that was, I think, my biggest issue with him as well, like, I didn't get anything from him, he was just kind of there, he just turned out, you know, to want to be the star of his own trial, he wanted to have, you know, his 15 minutes of fame, and I guess 20 years behind bars, although he, you know, <laughs> was guaranteeing himself he wouldn't go to jail because of, you know, violence in movies yeah, yeah. <laughs> which like i i feel like is at best a really flimsy you know logical leap there um and i i don't know i just like he's a good actor i like him in pretty much everything else but in this one i just sort of he just flew under the radar and then he showed up at the end and i was like oh well okay well when this movie came out like i'm not entirely sure when you watched it but at the time it was like in the good 2000 eight through 2009 it's been a long time okay because a lot of these actors weren't really big at the time like luke wilson tori spelling portia de rossi joshua jackson like timothy oliphant uh, they had been in tv shows or made appearances here and there but a lot of these people were just starting to become huge stars right like jerry o'connell was in stand by me but like no one really thought about this guy or talked about this guy since stand by me right you know what I mean? Like I, th I, I don't know if you. I, I guess you can credit both the casting. I, I'm not sure if it was a casting agent or Wes Craven. I don't know whose decision it was to cast Drew Barrymore, but you got to give her credit for taking the role and taking a chance and and doing something really really cool that not a lot of big actors would do because they have big egos, right? But because that movie was a huge hit, because she was in that film, everyone in Hollywood wanted to be in a screen movie, and so you have this incredible cast. But then you have the reoccurring cast, the people who were in the first film who return and they're like a hundred times better. Like the chemistry between Courtney Cox and, and, and um, David Arquette, David Arquette. Arquette. It's, it's amazing. Like, like I know they actually married in real life. Like they started dating and married in real life and they have kids and they, they, they got divorced. But even like to this day, like the chemistry between, between those two people in real life, it's undeniable that those two were meant to be like, even if they are divorced right now, they're still like completely 100% in love. And the chemistry between them in this film is amazing. Like It's one of the reasons why they are two of the best characters in the franchise, because you care so much about Dewey and Gail. And one of the reasons why you care so much about them is because they care so much about each other. And so like, they're not only like fun to watch, cool, and, and have great dialogue, and they, they have these great performances, but because someone in the actual film, like another character, cares about them, it makes us, the audience, care more. Whereas Nev Campbell, I love her, and I love her character, but does anyone in the movies actually really care about her the way someone cares about Dewey or Gale? No. 
Well, I think Dewey and Gale are meant to be the heart of the movie. And it's good that we're getting to this after talking about, like, the, again, Scream 2 and Scream 1 has have a lot of flaws. Scream 1 is better structured, and I think we can agree that the villains are probably the, the weakest part of Scream 2. But the strengths of Scream 2, the chemistry, like you said, between the original cast is so much better. Their rapport is so much more natural and so much more endearing. That's what, to me, really seals Scream 2 for me as, as the better one. This is, I love the dialogue in this. But, yeah, I think, like, they are, they're the heart of the movie. Nev Campbell is um, – Sydney is supposed to be that, – that, that is still who the audience is going to attach themselves to. She's still the gateway for us into this world. Even though we want to be maybe be friends with Gale and Dewey, we are not Gale and Dewey. We are still Sydney. And uh, Sydney's always been a magnetic character to me because she – is a proactive character, and she's much more proactive in Scream 2 than she is in Scream 1. Uh, obviously, in Scream 1, things are happening to her, and she doesn't quite understand them, but by the time Scream 2 rolls around, she understands what's going on, and she takes action, which is different than you see in a lot of slasher, fi- slasher flicks. It's in a different way, I guess. There's definitely, and I love that first scene when she's attacked. I guess I, lo- I love when she goes back to answer the phone, and she says, why don't you show your face, you fucking coward? <laughs> that to me has always been, and then of course he comes right out and does. But that challenge has always been one of the reasons why I really do like Sydney. It was such a power move when she did that. <laughs> yeah, it's one of my favorite scenes yeah. in, the, in the film. And one of my favorite moments, specifically. It's but, so uh, good. But it's like even in Scream 1, she calls his bluff, right? That's Scream 1? Yeah. She goes outside, uh, she calls her, she's like, I call your bluff, you're not outside, you're not standing in the front porch, and Ghostface is actually inside the closet. Like, she's always trying to outsmart the killers in all of the movies, and even if she's not physically, um, you know, not physically attacking the killer or trying to get away or, like, being, like, this big, huge powerhouse, like, mentally, she's just always trying to, like, outthink the killer and what the next move is. Like, it's, like, that's the thing about the, these films is that they, they're they not just, like, horror films. They're whodunit. They're mysteries. Like, mystery, murder, murder mysteries, right? And so you have Gail and, and Sydney who are always trying to play, quote-unquote, detective. She plays detective more so in the later films as opposed to the first film because in the first film she's really trying to play the victim because that's the character that she's given to play. But yeah. still, towards the end of the film, she's the one that sort of, like, realizes that, you know, it's probably her boyfriend who's the killer. Yeah, I mean, no one would have expected her to be two killers, but she, like, she was at the point where, you know, when we talk about survival, she's clearly going to be the character who's going to survive because she's so smart to the point where she won't even trust anyone. Like, even in this movie, she doesn't trust her boyfriend, you know? So, like, for her, everyone's a suspect, and she's not going to take any chances. Yeah, and I I love the energy that, uh, and this is something I don't remember ever seeing in a slasher flick before, although, Rick, you're more versed in these than I am, and Caitlin, you might be as well. Um, I don't remember seeing the energy brought to the attack scenes in previous slasher flicks. Usually it was that Jason or, you know, Michael Myers would just be, they'd be up behind somebody. Occasionally that person would fight back and have a chance to fight back, but usually the strike was so quick that they didn't. Uh, I love the running around in this. I love, like, the attack on Cece, how she's just throwing everything. Like, she throws a potted plant at him. She wheels the bicycle at him. Like, every single thing in a a room that a character can use to get away from Ghostface in these movies, they do. And Sydney does the same thing. You're slamming doors. You're kicking. You're punching. You're doing everything. It actually feels like they're trying to survive as opposed to just being victims. That's what I love about the Scream movies, and that's carried over into Scream 2 in a great way, too. And Wes Craven like uses those interiors as little mazes that his camera can run through, so you get kind of disoriented 
which lends itself really well to an attack scene. I'm always amazed at how much punishment the actors take on set because there's so many scenes throughout the entire franchise, like not just Scream 2, but even specifically like Scream 3, for example, where the actress will go through a table, go through a glass window, or fall off a ledge. And, like, you know it's the actress. Like, you can clearly see it's not a double. Like, of course, they use stunt doubles, like stuntmen. But, like, usually, like, a lot of times, it's the actual actor. So I totally agree. And, like, there are movies, like, we could think of, like, Revenge, that amazing, like, French film, which came out a few years ago, which is awesome. Um, But early slasher films, like, a lot of times, it would be, like, the victim or the girl running, but not necessarily, like, fighting. There was always the final girl but throughout the film would be like the, the the villain, the baddie, be it Jason or Michael, whoever it is, would always have the upper hand and will always be more physically dominant. Um, so I, I get what you're saying. There's actually a great scene in Scream. I think it's actually Scream 3, if I'm not mistaken. Or I think it's like Sydney's running up a flight of stairs and goes faces behind her. And she just stops and she kicks her foot back. And like this man goes flying down the stairs. And I think that was one of the... I mean, all of the fight scenes have been pretty great. I think all of the chase scenes in the like the Scream franchise are just amazing. But I think that was one of the moments where I really paused and I was like, oh my gosh, like the amount of energy and like liveliness that comes with these particular like showdowns is absolutely breathtaking. Like I, I, don't, I think it's just amazing. Yeah, it seems like they're fighting to survive and you just don't see that out of most or like I say, early slasher flicks where the person just kind of got stabbed and that, that would be it. They'd scream. And like you say, they'd run away a little bit, Rick, but they wouldn't necessarily fight back and they'd probably trip and fall and they'd, they'd get killed, right? Uh, but here it, it does. It seems like a desperate struggle. So like even as Sarah Michelle Gellar's CC is getting stabbed in the back, she gets picked up. She's still kicking and struggling, even as she's getting picked up and going to be thrown over the balcony. They're, the struggle never stops for the people in this. And that to me really makes these scenes more intense than than many slasher films previously uh, had been. Not that, you know, there's anything wrong with... I, I think, they're, like you, like you, I think the first Halloween is an absolutely amazing uh, movie, and, you know, it's a little bit... It, it has a little bit different approach to those scenes than Scream does, but I love the intensity that the, the fights bring in Scream. And Scream 2 has some of the best ones, in my opinion. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a huge difference between Halloween and Scream in that in Halloween... Uh, John Carpenter was always trying to keep the boogeyman in the shadows. And so you weren't yeah. really supposed to see the the fight, the physical fight between him and his victims. Scream is a completely different beast. It's It really is a straight-up slasher film in a sense that it's going to be a lot of chasings and some dude with a knife or a sharp object chasing whoever it is he's chasing. But, I mean, you see it throughout the entire franchise. And, like, one of the, the key examples is the Rose McGowan death scene in part one where she's basically fighting off this guy as if they're in some kind of like crazy no holds barred like WWE hardcore match in the garage and she's like throwing glass bottles at him like hitting him over the head with like a fridge and and she nearly gets away and then unfortunately it's the garage door that actually kills her so the entire mm-hmm. film and it's not just the ladies it's the men too and the the scene in the radio station is a prime example. You have two of the main characters in a franchise, Dewey and Gale. They are running from the killer. They end up inside the radio station booth uh, in different rooms, and dividing them is the sound barrier, the, the big glass shield or window, whatever you call it. And so you can't hear his screams and her screams, depending on which room you're in, right? And I just thought that was amazing. Like it's it's like it's like it's not a silent scene. Like there's still like music. You have the sound design. You have the soundtrack. But it could have easily been 
a silent scene. Like if if we were watching a point of view of Gail and she's seen Dewey being like stabbed a few times, but she can't hear him on the other end because of the soundproof barrier. Like to me, that like little things like that. It's it's just like that's what I love about uh, Wes Craven. He like I mean, how many people die in this movie, and yet every single time someone dies, like yes, it might still be Ghostface who's holding a knife. But it's not necessarily just Ghostface stabbing someone. Like the way he creates his suspense, he's just fancy. He's just a genius, right? I mean, it was. I mean, rest in peace, Wes Craven. But um, that is why, like, watching these movies again this week, I've always wanted to sort of put Scream, like, label it like my favorite movie franchise of all time, when it comes to horror films. And I just never could put it above Nightmare on Elm Street, only because Nightmare on Elm Street was the movie that made me like a huge movie buff. Forget about a, a loving horror movies. I just started taking notice of like the director and the actor's names and and the process of filmmaking and lighting and cinematography and so it holds a special place in my heart but after watching these movies back to back all four movies i mean they're all fantastic and so for me now 2020 i will happily say that scream is by far my favorite horror movie franchise and it's the one franchise that I return to year after year. Like every year around Halloween in October, I will watch at least one, if not two of these movies. Yeah, it's hard for me to put it as a favorite franchise simply because of the meta aspects. I do, before we go to our, our break, I do want to like bring up Stab and see what you guys think of Stab. Because this was, the screen movies were the people's, most people's introduction to meta that's not necessarily the way that it actually worked out in real life there there are other horror movies that certainly the audience and referenced horror movies themselves uh, i had recently watched friday the 13th part six and that one directly references horror movies and actually even has a character turn break the fourth wall um to speak to the audience but this is the one i think where most people were introduced to that in horror movies um so that makes it t i i prefer sincerity like pure sincerity to be in my franchises but the screen franchise is right up there um what do you guys think of stab though what do you guys think of the meta aspects of scream 2 oh i was just gonna say i absolutely love it i think it's like such a clever way of paying like because the whole series right is in itself paying homage to horror film horror cinema and i love the fact that these are not only paying homage to that but they're paying homage to like the previous films in the franchise i love that they almost at times kind of feel like they're parodying themselves, but then they take an actual serious turn and you're like, wow, I didn't, I didn't really expect it to go in that direction, but you also kind of do because of how the series goes. I don't know. I just felt it was a really interesting way of paying tribute to like the previous screen movies and just tropes of the genre, but also breathing fresh air into them. But I think in the world of Scream, that is exactly what you expect to happen. Someone's going to make a, a movie, a Hollywood movie about what happened in Woodboro. And, and the thing is, like, nowadays, like, even 2020, when you look at, say, what was really popular this year, like, look at Tiger King, the Netflix series. And so what's happening is they're going to be making a, um, a movie about Tiger King, like, the actual dude, right? And then there's the question is, like, who's going to play him? And then, of course, in Halloween, like, everyone's dressing up, like, not only um, him, but what's her face? The, the lady in the film, in the documentary. I can't, I can't remember her name. You mean Carol Baskins? Yes, Carol Baskins, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Her. So people are dressing up like these characters. They're going to make like a a, doc, a a biopic of like him. And like, there's, you know what I mean? So it's like, so, but this is like 1997. And so like the internet was just sort of like starting to take off. And that's what I find interesting about these movies because I feel like in some ways they are really ahead of the trends and like what would be 
sort of like you know like the idea of like social media and the way we talk about movies and dissect movies and like that's why i actually really like scream 4 also because it's not the best i think it's the i think i think if i were to rank the scream movies it's very simple it's scream scream 2 scream 3 scream 4 scream 4 is still a really good movie but the thing about it it is sort of like a reboot slash sequel which was filmed like years after even like the third one was released so i still think they did a really good job with that movie like specifically like the fact that the killer's actually filming the the murders right and he's got like the hidden camera and they're doing a lot of like live streams so stuff like that i found like the movies always found a reason to to exist right like there is a reason to have the third movie and the second movie and the fourth movie because they find a new way or a new motive for the killer to actually kill and and why like and not only a motive of why the killer is actually trying to kill but why the killer wants to kill sydney so mm-hmm. A lot of times it can be convoluted and it can be silly, but it is a slasher film at the end of the day. And let's face it, this screenplay, when you compare it to like the first Halloween or Friday the 13th, I mean, it's like a masterpiece, right? Like those screenplays aren't very good. It's not the screenplay that made those movies good. It's the director that made those movies good. Yeah, the sophistication behind these screenplays is a big part of it. And obviously we're going to get into who we think is most responsible for the success of Scream. And I think there there's some good arguments for, for a couple of different people. Um, but yeah, I, I, I've always liked this, the stab movies fit so well within the Scream universe because the first one was so self-referential and was winking at the genre in general, that that was the, the place for these movies to go. And it, it makes any silly, this, that silliness that occurs in these movies just a little bit more believable within that world. I mean, when you see, when you first see Luke Wilson in that <laughs> Billy Loomis hair, you know that they're laughing at themselves and they're, they know exactly what details to laugh at as well. So they're smart enough to understand what about them, even the smallest things, what about them was kind of silly. Uh, and they, they, they lean into that stuff. Great. So being so self-aware, I, it, it really is like that's, that's great screenwriting. And uh, obviously Wes Craven was right on board with that as well. He, he, he got the joke and he had already sort of participated a little bit of this with the, in the Nightmare on Elm Street series, isn't it the fifth one that that gets meta? Where Wes Craven Seven, Wes Craven's Nightmare. Yeah, New Nightmare. Yeah, yeah. So he had he had done a little bit of this before. I mean, like a Nightmare on Elm Street One and Seven, which is Wes Craven's uh, Nightmare, are like by far the two best in the franchise and two of the greatest horror films ever made. And like just Wes Craven alone, I mean, the dude has made like I mean, God, I mean that I consider him the master of horror. Like I, you know, you know, the thing is. I met John Carpenter, George Romero, uh, John Landis, like all of these dudes that I, who, like, you know, all these guys who I, uh, who I love, like these, ho- these horror icons, like these film directors, I grew up watching their movies, except for Wes Craven. He's the only guy who I didn't meet and now I'll never meet him. It sucks. It does. Um, <laughs> before we cut the break though, the ending, I think the ending is more dramatic than the original film. And it's because yes, yes it takes place in, in front of the theater production and you have the music and it's just like, it's more epic. And, and there is a camera shot. I just want to quickly mention this. There's a camera shot in the, in the climax, right? Where she looks through, Mrs. Loomis looks through a little hole. And so you see the point of view of her eyeball. When you see her eyeball and you see the point of view of what she sees and you see uh, Sydney Prescott run by and she's holding the, the, an ax. And then she quickly turns her head to the left you know, you know, you know what camera shot I'm talking about? It's like, yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. I think that is the best shot in the movie. It reminds me of like an early '80s Jalo film. It is by far the best shot in the film. It is. Oh my god, I love, I love that shot. 
the ending of Scream 2 is is just superior. Even though it still has, that's probably the place where the dialogue suffers the most outside of one scene, which we will talk about in the next segment, or at least I will bring up. Um, that's where the dialogue is at its weakest, but it's still better than the original Scream's ending monologues by uh, the two killers. Uh, and it's staged better. It's more interesting. There's there's more things going on. That That original scene in Scream was just the guys standing around, and then every once in a while... Wes Craven would be like, you know what, Sydney, you got to move so that they they move so that we don't just have you guys standing in the kitchen. The well, that's the thing. Time. That's what I mean. About two and three have better locations. Like part one and even part four, it mostly takes place in front of or inside someone's house, like most slasher films. Part two and part three, they take it outside of the house. Like in part three, you're in a radio station, you're in a university, you're like, you know, they have the the the, the scene in which Ghostface actually drives a car. Like it's it, like. Scream Three takes place on a Hollywood on a Hollywood like studio lot, right? Um, and so I do like the locations and the setting in Scream Two. The only thing I miss is I or it's not that I miss it. I just don't understand why it doesn't appear to be the exact same town as Scream One because you don't see the openness, you don't see the mountain views, you don't see the forest. Like it's just really odd. It just feels like it was shot on a studio. Quick note before we move to break. Um, so there's this thing, Patrick, where like I like to make lists, right? And I really need to stop making lists because they're going to drive me nuts. Like, I, I think someone should make a horror film about someone who makes lists about horror films and they end up going crazy and eventually just, like, go around killing people. Because, like, I'm looking at my oh, list no. of the best films of 1997 and I'm like, how is it that I put Scream 2 listed as, I think, number 23? Like, there's 20, you're going to tell me there's 22 wow. films released in 1997? 1997 was a fantastic year, though. It's the year that gave us uh titanic um it's the year that gave us perfect blue probably the best horror film released in 1997 event horizon copland like there's so many great movies released in 1997 but i still think i ranked it way too low this movie should be in top 15 if not top 10 i was never an event horizon fan but oh, uh breakdown came out in 97 breakdown's great obviously um <laughs> we've done that one uh, really quick. All right. One final, final note before we go to break. Have has anybody here besides me seen the screen, the MTV Scream TV series? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I saw season one. That's about right. Yeah. Season one. <laughs> all right. Just checking. All right. So we're all good on that one. Uh, Unfortunately. You know what? Uh, I'm, I kind of want to see a Scream 5, and I kind of don't want to see a Scream 5. I want to see a Scream 5 if Wes Craven was alive to direct a Scream 5. I'm afraid of someone directing a Scream 5 that's not Wes Craven. Yeah, I kind of think there's nothing really more that they need to do. They did the reboot one, and that's kind of... You see, but the thing of, is, if yeah, Randy but... was here, he would say that if you're going to do a Scream 5 in 2020, it's got to be a prequel slash reboot slash remake. It's got to be all three, <laughs> where it gets all confusing. So it's like, is it a remake? Is it a prequel? Is it a sequel? It's like, what is this? And it... <laughs> That's what it's got to be. Oh, I mean, God. Scream in space. That's the only way to go. That's the only move we can make now is put Scream, <laughs> put it into space. <laughs> Guaranteed no slam. space in space. I think you've got your subtitle right there. Uh, all right. <laughs> On that note, uh, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, but before we come back, here's another clip from Scream 2. So moral majority. You can't blame real life violence on entertainment. What? Wait a second. Yes, you can. Don't you, don't you even watch the news? Yeah. Hello. The murderer was wearing a ghost mask, okay? Just like in the movie, it's directly responsible. No, it's not. Movies are not responsible for our actions. It's a classic case of life imitating art, imitating this life. This is not a hypothetical. It's not about art. 
I had biology with that girl. This is reality. Thank you. I agree with you. Let me tell you about reality, Mickey. I live through this, okay? Life is life. It doesn't imitate anything. Come on, Randy. With all due respect, the killer obviously patterned himself after two serial killers who have been immortalized on film. Thank you. Right. Are you suggesting that someone's trying to make a real-life sequel? Stab two? Who'd want to do that? Sequels suck. Hey, no, no. Wow. Come on, man. Oh, please, please. By definition alone, they're inferior films. It's bullshit generalization. Many sequels have surpassed their original. Oh, yeah? Name one. Yeah. Aliens, far better than the first. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, there's no accounting for taste. Thank you, Ridley Scott rules. Name another. No. <laughs> Aliens is a classic, okay? Get away from her, you bitch. I believe the line is, stay away from her, you bitch. It's film class, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. whatever, you know what I mean. Another. T2. Mm. You've got a hard-on for Cameron. Big one. Yeah. <laughs> but wait a second, the first Terminator is historical. Yeah. Sarah Connor. Yes. <laughs> Wait, fine. All right, all right, all right, okay. House two, the second story. Oh, what? The entire horror genre was destroyed by sequels. All right, that was another clip from Scream 2. We are at the portion of the podcast where we ask our five questions. Uh, and, of course, we like to start everything off on a positive note. So, and I think we've been mostly positive about this. We probably highlighted a lot of things we don't like about Scream 2. But, again, we're all really high in this movie. But, uh, Caitlin, what is your favorite scene from Scream 2? I mean, it's definitely going to be, like I said, the intro or the car scene. That was so tense, just so harrowing. So it, it's got to be a tie between the two of those. But yeah, the either the opening or like the scene where they're trying to escape the car and just Ghostface is there and they got to climb through that window. And the entire time you and Sydney, <laughs> you're all just like clenching, wondering if she's going to make it out. That car scene is fantastic as far as suspense goes. And that's another reason, again, that scene shows off another reason why I like Sydney, the character of Sydney, so much. First of all, she dares to crawl across the face. Kind of had to, but she does it. But then second, she wants to go back and see who it is instead of just getting out of there. It's like, that's one of the few times, a lot of times in horror movies, they, they need to go back or they need to lift the mask. And you're like, no, just get out of there. But not this time. This seems like, you know what? I've had enough. I need to know who this is. And uh, I like that attitude. Um, all right, so Rick, how about you? What is your favorite scene? I mean, I said it earlier on the podcast, the car chase, the car crash. Yeah. The, car, the car crash, I mean, this is a master class in creating tension, building suspense. It's unbearable. Like, it's amazing. The fact that she has to climb over Ghostface and she's trying to remove his mask and she's just about to remove his mask and she hits the car horn. I mean, I remember jumping out of my seat. Like, it's one of those moments where it's not, it's, it's about building a suspense. You're, you're, you're gripping onto your chair, right? You're just at the edge of your seat. But then it still manages to make you jump because it has the jump scare. And then you're, and it, like, I mean, it's not, and it's just not her. It's her friend who's also, who also needs to cr climb over Ghostface and get out of the car. And like you said, she decides to go back. Because that's the thing. When you watch these movies, you're like, just pull off the mask, get it over with. So at least we know who the killer is. And she actually goes back. Like, Oh my God, if you want to call Scream 2 a masterpiece, then go for it. Because that scene alone qualifies as a masterclass of film direction. Yeah, and everything about it is great. Because it's the lead up, you get your little bit of gory violence, um, which Randy had you know alluded to in, in that earlier scene describing movie sequels. The pull through the, <laughs> the detective's head. Uh, and then the twitching body and all that kind of stuff. So you get your gore, but then you get your absolutely brilliant 
brilliantly crafted suspense too. And and it's it's great because the movie slows down. Although it slows down, it it's like the most suspenseful scene in the entire film. Yeah. And I okay, so for me, I'm going to go in a, in a slightly different direction. I think that like the the a lot of those scenes get to me completely. I love that scene. I love the um the auditorium scene or the the sort of the film the film library scene where Dewey gets stabbed. Uh, those are nice, like, emotional moments. But I'm going to go with my favorite scene of being Randy and Dewey talking about movie sequels in that little ca- that, that restaurant cafeteria thing while Stab is playing in the background. It was that, such a me, tender scene. Yeah, and it sums up the screen movies to me and why I love them so much, because they are so self-referential with movies. They're attempting to dissect movies, and I love that about them. And they, kind of, and they dissect them with a sense of humor and wit. Uh, I love at the end of the the, uh, the scene playing from Stab, which is a great scene, by the way. That's the one between Tori Spelling and Luke Wilson. But where Randy says, I'll wait for video. <laughs> like, that's just a fantastic representation of like a, a, <laughs> what they even think of their own franchise kind of thing. So that anyway, that's mine. But, all right, what is, if there's one thing that you could change about Scream 2, Caitlin, what would it be? I mean, I, I still, I'm... I'm holding fast to the Billy Loomis mom reveal. I don't know. I don't even know how you could possibly change that without like reworking some major parts of the script. Um, but she couldn't I, be a reporter. No, she couldn't confront Gail. That that'd be the one thing she'd have to. Yeah. Like, she'd have to stay away from everybody. Maybe and maybe you wouldn't even realize it. Kind of like how Bruce Willis, you don't realize he's dead in the sixth sense because he's sitting in the room with other people. Until you go back and watch it and you realize that those people never actually interact with him. Yeah. I or like you if you had to... like even like reports that she's done that people are reading being like, how could she say this? Or why would she suspect that? And it's like she's always a character without ever actually being seen in the movie. Mm-hmm. It's just to me, I just I don't know. I, I you know, I know there's explanations for it, but to me I just feel like it undercuts how intelligent Gail's character is and just sort of like how this mom who's so hellbent on revenge, on trying to like you know, a, a, you know, somehow make up for the death of her son, you know, who's, who's clearly out of her mind, but still, you know, very much in mourning for her child, to me, just undercuts, like, how carefully she would have planned for that, to have her such, you know, a present figure, and confronting these, like, two women, or, or you know, skating dangerously close, at least to, you know, running into Sydney on, on the campus grounds, that it's just, like, that whole thing just frustrated me, because I, I just, I feel like it just does a disservice to, like, her planning and her attempt at revenge, but then also Gail's intelligence. I could see that. Um, Rick, what about you? So I've already mentioned the casting, but I'm not going to change the casting. It's just one line, and it ties into your favorite scene, Patrick. When Randy says, Mickey, the freaky Tarantino film student, but if he's a suspect, so am I. So like the thing is, that's why when he said that line, I was like, right away, Mickey's the killer. I don't know what it is, so it's a personal thing. It's just like it's when I figured out who the killer was. Um, but no, in all honesty, it would be the casting. Like, I don't know. I'm just not the biggest fan of having the sister from Roseanne has being cast as the as Bill, um, Mrs. Loomis and the killer of this film. And then Timothy Oliphant. Like, I do like the actor, but I don't like him in this movie. See, I never saw Roseanne, so the Laurie Metcalf thing never never bothered me. Um, I didn't know her at all. Yeah, well, that's, her character in Roseanne is exactly her character in this film. Okay, that is unfortunate. Then I can yeah. I can definitely see it's, how that could get it's in your weird because it's it's like, you know, are you acting? Like, I mean, I guess you are to some extent, but you come across as the exact same person in the TV show. So I, she was 
absolutely batshit crazy in the TV show, too? Well, I mean, apart from the, the climax, I mean... Because <laughs> she's kooky in that climax. <laughs> like a cartoon character. I mean, the whole entire family of Roseanne is kind of, like, crazy. Sure. Do you not remember the episode of Roseanne where she pulls a gun and threatens to shoot someone? Is that not a familiar favorite of that TV series? <laughs> I don't know. I never saw any of this, so that, that's all new to me. Um, I just thought she was very, very strange. All right, so my uh, the one thing I would change would be, and we'll get to this in a later question, too, while, while I'll answer a later question in a certain way, is I would cut out an entire scene, or at least it needs to be completely reworked, because I, I do not like it at all, and that is the actual film school scene with randy and his classmates cc and mickey talking about sequels i find it to be embarrassing and having gone to film school thank god i hope we didn't talk like that but regardless even what they're saying is such a it, it, to me it, it seems like an, an embarrassing uh conversation that how somebody thinks film school kids would think and talk uh, especially when they start talking about older movies like The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two, and they're just sort of falling in line, not not with their own thoughts, but with just what the prevailing attitudes of filmdom was that day. Um, the way they get into Cameron and you know Aliens and Terminator Two, and I think Randy even misquotes the uh, Randy uh, assumes asserts some sort of superiority when it comes to a quote from Aliens that he gets wrong. I I don't like that entire scene, and I also don't think that it adds a single thing to the the movie, the story of the movie. Unlike the conversation with Dewey, where they're talking about sequels, where he's talking about upping the gore and what kind of killers it would be, that engages the audience to think about sequels, to actually analyze sequels, to think about how a sequel could put a twist on the original, whereas the film school conversation adds literally nothing. They're just arguing over whether or not a sequel could be better than an original. I disagree. I mean... I will agree that the dialogue isn't great, but what the scene does is it adds the conversation about art imitating life, life imitating art. Are people actually going to be influenced by watching scary movies to go out and commit crimes? That's the conversation starts in the classroom and carries on throughout the film. So I get what yeah, you mean about the second. dialogue. Yeah. They, they talk for a second about that. And then they really spin out of control just about like, what's a name movie, a sequel that's better than the original. And that becomes the, the main thrust of that conversation. And they completely lose. Had they talked about movie violence in real life for, for that entire conversation, I think I would have been saying something different about this. Right. But that what I'm saying is I wouldn't remove it. I would rewrite it. Yeah, I, I would. I mean, I guess I would remove it as is, but I, I wouldn't mind if they rewrote it. That'd be fine, too. But I, I would change it no matter what. Um, all right. So all that out of the way. Caitlin, who's the MVP of Scream 2? Oh, man. I mean, definitely Gail. <laughs> she, she's the MVP in every single one of these movies to me. <laughs> so, like, yeah, Gail Weathers. I mean, I don't really think. So Courtney Cox in general, do you think? Oh my God, yeah. The of the movie, okay. she's just amazing. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love, you know, I love Nev Campbell. I love her as Sydney, and I have. So okay, so with her character, I get some real mad Jess vibes from Black Christmas in the way she fights back, in the way she is very proactive, and I, I love her character. But it's just Gail's tenacity, Gail's like determination to get to the, you know, to the truth. But then also, like, showing this conflict of, like, you know, her own personal values and her own relationships and then her also grappling with her ambition and, like, the cost of it. I do like that, like, side plot. I know she isn't, you know, supposed to be the main character. I know it's not her story. It's really, you know, 
Sydney story as she escapes these killers. But there's just so much about Gail and how much I like just love this character and the complexity of her that there isn't a Scream movie that you can put in front of me where I don't say she's the MVP of it. I think my favorite part of Gail Weathers in or my favorite moment from her is when they're looking for the it's right before Randy gets killed and they think that somebody has a phone like they've called Randy or whatever and they're looking around for the phone so she runs over and she grabs that guy's phone and he goes who is this she says Gail Weathers and who is this you know just yeah. sort of <laughs> she's all angry like how do you not know <laughs> <laughs> exactly for me the MVP of the film is Wes Craven and when we spoke about the car crash so the car crash isn't actually in the script. He decided to do the car crash on the fly because he was just like, this would be a great way to build up suspense and scare the audience. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, if, if rumors to be, if if, if, if if this is to be true, because Kevin Williams, you know, sometimes people say something that's not really true, but Kevin Williamson said that it, and often in the screenplay, he would just write, Wes Craven will make it scary. And he wouldn't actually go into detail about what the actual, say, chase scene is. He would just like, he would leave it up to Wes Craven to fill in the blanks. That is true from what I've read as well, that other studio executives have, have said that, yeah, he would turn in parts of the script and, and just write something like, ah, there's a, they go in the car, Wes Craven will make this scary. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, like I said, this movie has three, three great scenes. No bad scenes. You know where I'm going with this, Patrick. Three great scenes, no bad scenes. And it's really because of Wes Craven's direction. I mean, yes, Kevin Williamson is... Like, you got to give him credit for writing the screenplay. Yes, Courtney Cox is by far the best actor in the entire franchise. And yes, I love Nev Campbell. And Dewey is a great character. And Randy's fun to watch. But at the end of the day, this is all about the director. Yeah, and I love, I, I was close, this close to giving Kevin Williamson this one. But um, because I do think that he really mastered his dialogue. This is kind of his peak dialogue, I think, of all the movies that he wrote in that period. And he was a really hot writer in that period. He was, he was, doing a lot of scripts when you look at some of the other movies that he did write uh that did have different directors they didn't turn out as well i mean something like i know what you did last summer there's stuff there that i think a different director could have done more with um and you sort of you can see some of the flaws in williamson's stuff because the structure of scream 2 isn't great um the dialogue's fantastic but the structure isn't great. It's Wes Craven, I think, that ultimately brings this together as a movie and creates those suspenseful scenes. Um, so that I got to give it to him. But I do really, really love his dialogue in this. I think this was peak Kevin Williamson dialogue right here. Uh, I don't think it ever got any better than this. Uh, but, Rick, you already alluded, it, alluded to it. So uh, Howard Hawks reputedly once said that a great movie consists of three great scenes and no bad ones. Caitlin? Does Scream 2 pass the Howard Hawks test? Oh, man. I mean, no. <laughs> We're going to go by that logic. No. Um, What's your bad like, one? I mean, I know everyone disagrees with this, but again, it's the ending where you find out who the killers are. I didn't love that showdown on the stage. And again, I know everyone disagrees with this, <laughs> and it's like unpopular opinion in the world, but it's just, I don't know, I... I wasn't a personal fan of like that climactic ending. There were a couple of flaws. I mean, every movie has flaws, right? Um, but it just, I felt that there was a lot going on on that stage that didn't necessarily have to go on. There were conversations that were being had that were just like wordy for nothing. The, you know, the Mrs. Loomis reveal to me just kind of fell flat, was really lacking and just made my head explode. So yeah, I don't, I guess by that standard, it doesn't pass the test for me, but like, 
I still love the movie. <laughs> so like, oh yeah, it has That's... the three, you know, three good scenes, but also a bad one. Yeah, we kind of asked this question just because it can, can be interesting to point out. Sometimes it's fun to point out that you actually think that a movie you like has bad scenes, and a lot of the movies that we pick don't necessarily. We don't think they actually have any bad scenes. They might have scenes that we don't think are great, but like, okay, so I of course I, I'm gonna get to Rick last because I, he already alluded to his answer, and we'll we'll get to that. But I I do think, of course, I, I alluded to mine as well. I do think that the film school scene is a bad scene, the classroom scene. So for me, it can't pass the test, which which breaks my heart because I love Scream 2, but it does have one bad scene. So it doesn't, for me, pass the Howard Hawks test. But Rick, you disagree. Well, I disagree because, like I said, I think the scene serves a purpose. It could be rewritten so it's better, but I don't think it's a bad scene. I just think it's a scene that could be greatly improved. With Caitlin's response, the reason why I like the showdown is because, for me, the showdown is really a reflection of the Jalo genre, which is very similar to the slasher genre. It's just that most of those movies were made across seas, like in Europe and Italy, for example. And so when I watch the showdown, I think of Dario Argento. I think of a movie like Opera. I think of Michel Suave. I think of Michel Suave's film Stage Fright. I think of Lucio Fucci. And so, and especially that camera shot that I mentioned earlier on when she's looking through the peephole and you see the close-up of her eye and then you see the point of view of what she sees and you see Nev Campbell run run by holding the axe and she stares at her and then you have the 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 epic lighting and the the music the operatic music and just the fact that it's on a stage and and that in itself is kind of like meta like that is why i love that scene so all in all i don't think the movie has a bad scene and a lot of my friends think that this is a masterpiece like they think it's like the best in the the franchise and i thought it was the best in a franchise for years and years until this week who knows maybe next year i'll go back and call it the best right now i say scream the first screen film is the best. I think this is a close second. I think that this is one of the best horror films ever made. And it's also a sequel. And a lot of people think that it's easier to make a sequel. And it's not. I mean, there's a reason why most sequels are not as good as the original and sometimes bad. Because sometimes like, you have this one great idea. And you, it, you, know, you can't necessarily replicate it. You know what I mean? It's like so good that it's impossible to replicate that idea. And sometimes it has a lot to do with having the right crew and the right cast at the right time. And filming a movie and releasing a movie at the right time. And and somehow they pulled it off and they did it like within six months because they started working on this six, six months later and the movie was released a year later in the movie theater. Um, and just quickly, what's crazy about this movie, right? This movie was released the same year as Titanic and the James Bond movie was it Tomorrow Never Dies, like two huge blockbuster films. And those two movies, those two studios were afraid to compete with Scream 2 that they changed the release date of their movies. So mm-hmm. that's how powerful this franchise is. And I don't know, like, I mean, it, it like, you give credit to Scream, the original film, for sort of bringing new life into the genre of horror because it was really dying in the 90s. But Scream 2 sort of elevated it to a whole new level. And I love Kevin Williamson. I know a lot of people are harsh on him. I mean, look at The Faculty. The Faculty is, again, a fantastic movie. Yeah, directed by good. Robert Rodriguez, but written by him. Um, he knows his shit. And I'm like... I mean, I'm worried about Scream 5, but you know you know who's directing Scream 5, right? It's the guy who directed Ready or Not. So if you haven't seen Ready or Not, <laughs> watch Ready or Not, because it's, it's, so it's a good. killer, killer, killer movie. So I really good. wanted to see that. I, I didn't get to go to the festival, so I didn't get to go see it. I know you saw it up at the... Uh... I'm pretty sure it's on Prime. Is it? Okay. Hey, well, oh, I, you guys are, I don't think you have Canadian Prime though, because Prime is different in Canada and the U.S. I don't think it's come to Prime here quite yet. I hope it I thought does, it was but... Prime in the U.S. but not in Canada. 
I don't know, because oh, I had to, like, buy the damn movie to watch it. <laughs> okay, I haven't seen it pop up yeah. on my Prime thing yet, but I might search it out later to see if... Because uh, right now, I think that's the only way that I could see it, is to buy it. Ready or Not uh, is available to rent or buy, and if you want to rent it, it's $3. Oh, okay. On All right. Prime Video. So good. Yeah, I, I was looking forward to seeing that one. Um, it's like the best yeah, $3 I... you spend. <laughs> Kevin, it'll be interesting to see what he can what he can mine for Scream Five. He's obviously learned a lot over the decades, so yeah, we'll see what he can possibly come up with. Um, but that actually kind of goes into our next question: is is there you know what's the audience for Scream, the Scream franchise, and specifically like I guess we'll say Scream Two, but it's really the franchise in general as a whole. Uh, is there an audience for the Scream franchise anymore? Has Scream died out? Because uh, the MTV show, I don't remember. I don't think it did all that well. I'm not even sure if they made a second season for it. Um, I know, I'm pretty sure they haven't made a third one, if there was a second one. so Yeah, is, there was a second. There was a second? Okay. Yeah, but it wasn't, yeah, no. I didn't bother oh. with it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, is there an audience for this franchise going forward? I mean, yeah, I think so. Um, I get, so I guess... I guess it's kind of like a, a two-part answer for me. I think like there definitely is an audience for the franchise as it stands now, like not including the fifth one, um, for just people who want to go back and look at, you know, a horror cinematic juggernaut. Like it really is a great franchise. The first two for me anyways are amazing movies, even though I have <laughs> clearly some issues with the second one. Um, although again, I, I do love it. I just, I think I sound more bitter about scenes than I am. Um, but I think, going forward like i would hope that there's an audience for it specifically people who want to enjoy um i guess adult slashers is the best way to put it i mean there's there's a whole debate that was actually on twitter not long ago about whether slashers can be for adult audiences or if they're really a teen genre and you know if they can only be enjoyed by younger people who haven't quite cultivated you know their, their taste in horror yet um and i'm gonna hope that moving forward the Scream franchise can continue being an audience or being films for an audience of adult slasher, you know, viewers. I think the other, you know, I think these four movies, again, at the very least, the first two are exquisite films. I think there is a lot to take away as, you know, an adult audience, as, you know, an older viewer who can enjoy it and find just so much to pick apart, but enjoy in that. Um, I really don't know about Scream 5, though. So I think they're going to have to make it again, pretty textually heavy, pretty, you know, pretty complex for older audiences to watch and to not make necessarily like a teen slasher where it's just mindless killing and no commentary or mindless killing and no, you know, thought going into it. So. I think Drew Barrymore answers this question in Scream 1 when she gets the phone call from Ghostface. She says that the reason why she likes watching slasher films is because they feel more realistic as opposed to, say, believing in Ghost or some boogeyman like Hellraiser, um, Pinhead, for example. So I think I think the thing about and I, I, I don't know, maybe I'm just this is just the way I feel, but I kind of feel like the reason why I always loved slasher films growing up because it did it did feel realistic. Like when I walk down the street, I'm like, oh, my God, it's a guy following me going to pull out a knife and like stab me. Uh, so it's, it's not like I have to worry about something that's supernatural, which, you know, we don't believe in type thing. Um, the thing that I'm curious about is I, there, there's clearly an audience there will always be an audience for Scream so long as people like horror films but I wonder how someone who's like born after 1997 
like someone born after 2000, someone born in the internet age, how does how does someone like that view a film like Scream and understand the references, for example? Like, you know, like for them, like what is the Scream for the new generation, right? Because like there was like the whole like 70s movement of horror films, which is probably the best decade for horror. Then you had the 80s and it really focused on like teen horrors and like slasher films. And then the 90s things kind of died until Scream came along. But then Scream was referencing like the, the movies from the 80s and 70s so like how would people sort of like like you can't appreciate it if you didn't live through the 80s or 90s you know what i mean like i don't know how someone would would, yes. would view it i was gonna bring that way. up actually scream had a freshness that was part of the appeal and it's hard for me to separate that when watching it right now they are very good movies in their own right but i wonder how a modern audience uh will approach that because first of all the dialogue like i said is kind of very 90s i mean you could try to go back and watch Clerks now, and you can certainly appreciate it for what it is, but Kevin Smith's revolutionary dialogue doesn't hold up so well anymore. Um, it just doesn't. It's 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 kind of irritating in many ways. Um, and I, I think for some modern kids, I, I think the original parts of the original screen might come across that way. Not the opening. I think you could show the Drew Barrymore opening to anybody, and even though they might not understand the movies that they're talking about, I think they're going to get the situation and still be creeped out by it. As I'm sure as so many people back then were creeped out by that and didn't want to be home alone anymore, especially in a place with big windows uh, where somebody could be looking in on you. Um, but I don't know how like this sort of meta stuff holds up in a, in a, in a culture now where everything is almost meta, right? Like the Marvel universe is meta. So there's nothing fresh about scream being meta and analyzing horror movies, especially, like you said, Rick, if you're not familiar with those old slasher tropes, like then it, because they don't really make those anymore. <laughs> so... and the, the thing is a nightmare in Elm street seven, Wes Craven's new nightmare sort of like did the exact same thing, but it was like its own movie. It wasn't trying to create a cinematic universe, although it was part of a franchise scream was trying to create a cinematic universe. Right. And, it's like it's weird because if I like I would I would be curious to watch it with my nephew because if you have a line like in Scream One where they ask Sydney who would play you in a movie and she responds Tori uh, Spelling and then Scream Two Tori Spelling's playing Nev Campbell but he has no idea who Tori Spelling is because he didn't grow up watching a show like Nine Hundred Two One Zero you mean like a simple joke like that would go over his head but that's the majority of the film and because the film is part comedy part horror. Like, I don't think they would understand any of the comedy and any of the well, references. They, they won't maybe get the references, but I still think Scream 2 and especially the original Scream holds up as a standalone slasher film. I think Scream holds up as a standalone, standalone slasher film. You, you'll miss a lot if you're not familiar. Like, even that opening conversation where she's talking about, you know, Jason. Jason was the killer. Well, there are a lot of people now, like you said, born after 1997, that have no idea what Friday the 13th is. No idea. Um, so they don't know what, who Jason is. And so that conversation won't make any sense to them and they just won't care. Like the rest of the audience back when they first saw Scream in the movie theater, they were all saying, no, no, it was Jason, you know, it was Mrs. Voorhees. Uh, we could be engaged in that. The, the modern audience isn't going to get quite as engaged, but I still think they do hold up well enough as standalone slasher flicks. You get the idea they're structured in the same way the slasher flick is. But yeah, there's parts of it, I think, I, I wonder, Will, is there an audience for this kind of meta meta analysis of horror movies going forward? Because horror movies have changed, but each movie that's changed like, a lot. Every movie that's come out in the franchise has made commentary on the horror movies 
of the time that they're being released during. So like number four, right? It takes this entire idea of like filming the kills and making it digital and having this like online presence. I would imagine that for the fifth one, whatever they choose to do and keeping in line with the Scream franchise, they're going to try to make some commentary about modern horror movies or modern audiences. So I do think it's still going to hold up even if they made, you know, people who are viewing the franchise may not get a lot of the dated 90s references. I don't think the series itself is going to, you know, fall flat to them. And I think, or I'm hoping anyways, that with the release of Scream 5, they look at some of the newer ideas in horror and how horror does act as a commentary a lot of the times, you know, you know, now more than ever. And, you know, I'm, I'm excited to see what they're going to maybe do with this meta critique of the genre. And I feel like there's so much potential for Scream 5. So even if audiences, you know, modern audiences may not necessarily get the first two, just in watching the fifth one and then kind of working their way backwards, I think they might find an appreciation of the Scream franchise if they're, you know, a millennial viewer or what is it, Gen X or Gen Z rather is a new one. Gen Z, yeah. Yeah, I think they'll be fine. I, I'm not, I don't know, I, I wouldn't... I wouldn't doubt their abilities to enjoy older films from the nineties. And I mean, I think even a lot of, you know, you were saying that people don't know what Friday the 13th is, but I would almost argue that people know more now than ever because it's like these old classic horror films that people love and that became so famous. And you'll see people who are like, you know, 14, 15 years old wearing like Friday the 13th shirts, like those old band t-shirts, you know, they do that with old films. So I think if anything, like Scream 5 coming out might just like rejuvenate, the franchise with younger audiences and get them to appreciate it and to really, you know, right. enjoy the earlier movies. Not to uh, make this podcast too long, but I, my, my worry is, and I guess we'll find out next year is the thing is there's been a bunch of movies like scream that have come out since scream four that kind of do the same thing, like tragedy girls, for example, where it's very meta and, uh, you know, but there's a bunch Happy of Happy Death Day. Tucker to and you. Dale versus Evil, Dance of the, Dance of the Dead. Like yeah. There's a gazillion of, the, and they're all great. They're all great. Don't get me wrong. But I'm just wondering, can Scream 5 actually do something fresh when there's so many filmmakers that took inspiration from the Scream franchise and are doing the exact same thing where these movies are so meta and you have movies like uh, that, that revolve around, for example, social media and like horror films and the Internet, you know, online killings and et cetera, et cetera, like some really good films too, like Cybernatural, for example. But I, 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 I would personally love to see them actually, in all, all, honest to God, make a prequel that takes place in the 70s that in which the characters can't rely on wikipedia or the internet or cell phones or the or you know uh, social media i think it would make a far more interesting film i always said that if i was able to make a horror film like you gave me like 10 million dollars i wouldn't want my horror film to take place in modern times because i think that even something as simple as a, as a cell phone it it hurts your movie because there's always a way for someone to reach out for help you have to constantly invent ways constantly invent ways for the cell phone not to be able to work Which and you that, see all that the time. is and like and like nowadays in, in in most movies it's like they don't go to the library and do and do any kind of like real research or like detectives they just go on the internet and they find the answer right away that's why like i love a movie like zodiac right that's one of my favorite films of all time um so yeah. i think there's look there's an audience for scream clearly you're right caitlin especially with the internet it's easier for the younger audience to discover movies on places like Shudder and Amazon Prime and Netflix. But the problem is, is that there's tons of movies that they might not ever get around to watching that I've seen because I had the benefit of growing up and having video stores and working in a video store and working in a movie theater and working in a, re a repertory theater. Like, I mean, 
I have movies that are not available on DVD or Blu-ray. Forget about on a streaming service. Um, I have Blu-rays that are not available on streaming services. I have DVDs that were never put the Blu-ray and not on streaming services. It's like this weekend, I want to watch a bunch of horror films. Every single horror film I want to watch was not on Shutter. It's not on Amazon Prime, and it's not on Netflix. So I'm going to hold on to my DVD collection. And also, last but not least, there's so many movies and TV shows being released these days and YouTube shows and whatever that it's going to be almost impossible for the younger generation to catch up and watch the classics and keep up with the new stuff. They can, but you're going to have to put a lot more time into it. Whereas the older generation, we have the advantage of having, you know, we're older. So we've, we've had more time to watch the movies, but when we were growing up, we didn't have 2000 movies being released in the movie theater, like theatrically per year. It was like 98 at best, if not 80 movies being released per year. And of the 80 movies, you would only really want to see 50 so you can realistically watch every single movie released theatrically and on video if you wanted to. Nowadays, it's impossible to catch up. Impossible. My question will be, as for Scream 5, as to, you know, where does it go with the, specifically the slasher genre? What can it do with that anymore? The slasher genre just isn't popular anymore. Horror's gone in more of a ghost story kind of direction. I mean, there are the occasional slasher movies that pop up, but they have a lot of supernatural elements to them uh, if, they, if they do. Um, it's rare that you see something like Happy Death Day to you, which is pretty much a straight slasher movie, but it still has that Groundhog's Day bent to it. Um, and again, that one's very self-referential as well. So I wonder what it's going to do You know, in the, in the age of where paranormal activity changed everything, where the insidious movies are big. Um, you know, The Grudge and all these these other ghost stories. My God, there's a ton of them. Um, what, where can it go with slasher movies? Because there is no big major slasher franchise right now. I mean, they sort of tried to reboot Halloween, and it, it had middling success. But again, that's an old franchise. They don't really have any new slasher franchises to go with right now. So, yeah, I'll, I'm curious as to what they can possibly do with that. Um, but it'll be interesting. I'll probably I'll, I'll watch it for sure. All right, with that, we should probably wrap things up. Uh, Caitlin, where can we find you online? Oh, I'm pretty much everywhere um, on social media. So, you know, Twitter, uh, Facebook, Instagram, um, or you can check out my website. It's just CaitlinMarceau.ca. And my handle is always my name. It's always Caitlin Marceau on everything. So it's not too hard to find me. Yeah, and you can definitely, you can check out some of your stuff on uh, Tilt Magazine, Goombastomp.com. Definitely. Um, Um, Wait a minute, hold on a second. You're not going to not promote your series that you just wrote, are you? <laughs> no, I guess I should actually. Um, yeah, so if you guys enjoy, you know, talking about and discussing um, horror and specifically women in horror, I recently did a series on Tilt all month of October, um, the greatest uh, feminist icons in horror. Um, and, you know, there is somebody from Scream who does make appearance on that list. So that's tiltmagazine.net. Yeah. And also, I think your review of Black Christmas or your breakdown of Black Christmas essay, whatever you want to call it, is on Goomba Stomp, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So I did, yeah, so there's one on, yeah, Black Christmas on Goomba Stomp, and that's really just, like, looking at the movie and its whole, and then there's also, you know, a feminist icon, uh, that also looks at, um, Black Christmas pretty in, pretty in-depth, pretty detailed, pretty well-researched, um, that I think is also on tilt. Yeah, so definitely check those out, guys. Um, I haven't really done anything on Goomba Stomp for a while. I know I keep saying this every week that I'm going to get back. I feel like after the new year, that's probably going to be my, uh, that's what I'm going to aim for here. It's going to be a busy next couple of months. Um, 
But Rick, where can we find you online? And where can everybody go to hear the podcast? Yeah, mostly doing podcasts right now. I'm taking a break from writing. I will still write in the near future, but uh, right now I'm doing this podcast, which you can listen to just about everywhere and anywhere, but you can find all the links over at Goombastomp.com. I'm also doing a wrestling podcast on AEW, if you like wrestling, once again on Goombastomp.com. And the NXPress Nintendo podcast is still going strong, which is also on Goombastomp.com. So yeah, all of the links are always like in the actual post, so... You can find all the information by going to the website. Yep, or just search Sorted Cinema and you'll come right to us, I'm sure. Uh, All right, that'll do it for this week. We'll see you next week. I'm not interrupting anything, am I? You three look deep in thought. Have you ever felt a knife cut through human flesh and scrape the bone beneath? (laughs) It's him. (laughs) Who? The killer. He can see us. Just keep him on the phone. What do you want me to say? I, I don't know. Just keep him talking. Come on, Gail. Uh, what are we doing? Hi. Look for somebody so, uh, with a cell phone. What's your favorite scary movie? They'll never find me. Yeah, what do you care? Let them have their fun. So, uh, what's up? What's your favorite scary movie? Showgirls. Absolutely frightening. What's yours? Oh! Sorry. What's your problem? Wait, let me guess. A house in Sorority Row? Dorm the trip blood? Splatter University? Graduation day? Final exam? Am I close? Is that the best you can do? Because Billy and Stu were much more original. That's Who's this? Who's this? Gail Weathers, author of the Woodsboro Murders. Who? Okay, he's got to be around here someplace. He's just playing with us. Yeah. White male suspect, nine o'clock. My clock or your clock? Your clock. Go around the back. Why are you even here, Randy? You'll never be the leading man. Fuck you! No matter how hard you try, you'll never be the hero, and you'll never, ever get the girl. Hey! Shit! Sorry. Hey, man. Wrong guy, dead boy. Oh, yeah? Well, let's redirect the moment, Mr. I'm so original. Huh? Copycat two high school loser ass dickheads. Stu was a pussy ass wet rat. And Billy Loomis, Billy Loomis, what the fuck? Jesus. What a rat looking, homo repressed mama's boy. Why not set your goals higher, huh? You wanna be one of the big boys? Huh? Manson? Bundy? OJ?